This episode is sponsored by Lookout Games. Episode 22 of the Board Game Geek Podcast, where we geek out about board games, the mechanisms behind them, and the people who create them. I'm your host, Candace Harris, and I'm super excited to be here this morning with Uli Blenemann from Spielworks. How is it going today, Uli? Uh, I'm fine, Candice, and uh, thank you very much for having me. So although it's not my morning, it's my late oh, yeah. afternoon, <laughs> but I'm happy being here. <laughs> That's true. Yes, we are on we are in different parts of the world. <laughs> so it is my morning, your evening, but yeah, it's great to great to have you. Um what is new with you, Uli? Yeah, I had a pretty busy first half of July, but um actually not working on a specific game, but um there was in early July, it's a traditional thing. Uh, at Mallorca, so in Spain, um, there is a meeting oh. of about 25 uh, editors mainly, people from German companies. We are meeting there in two fincas, and we are testing games for a full week. So from all oh. other from all companies, we are giving honest feedback, and that was very important, quite stressful to play that many games, but really nice and last weekend i attended a berlin brettspiel convention which okay. is um let's see for us for north americans it's like um, origins or gencon so it's gotcha. not like it's not a fair like essen so mm -hmm. it's they have a program almost uh, around clock it's a little bit a smaller affair so about 10000 people but that was lovely. We had a small booth uh, with uh, Spielworks. We sold a little bit. We had excellent talks, but it was way too hot on Saturday. <laughs> oh. Because here, <laughs> because it, it, you probably know this, uh, Candice in Germany, um, we do not have that much of air conditioning. So uh, uh. Saturday was stressful, but all all in all, it was a wonderful time. That sounds that sounds awesome. Um, especially like that other convention that you went to where you're playing all the games with different people and kind of giving feedback. Uh, that's, yeah. that, that's cool. So I, I recently, uh, started logging plays for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I am, I am one of the people now who log their plays all the time and I am already addicted to it. I started, I guess today is Thursday that we're recording. Uh, I started a week ago. And I have been toying with the idea of longing plays for a while, but I just never knew when to start. You know, I would miss yeah. the start of a year. So this year kind of marks me being into the hobby of modern board games for five years now. So wow. I was like, I'm going to start doing it this year. <laughs> and I was going to start at my local convention in LA, Strategicon, which uh, is Labor Day, because that's where I met like a lot of my my board game friends that are still friends and that kind of started my whole like network of gamer gaming friends and everything. But then I was like, well, no, why don't I just start at the beginning of the convention season 
And I went to Portland Game Collective Con last weekend, so PGC Con, uh, which is a trick-taking game convention. So I was like, I'm going to start logging my plays for this trip. And, uh, you know, and then I have Gen Con and well, Strategic Con. So this is the start of me logging plays. <laughs> um, but the trick-taking con, uh, do you like trick-taking games, Uli? Yes. Um, you know, trick-taking is, is traditional, especially yes. in Germany, with some, some very old games. So, so everybody basically in Germany knows trick-taking. So, so everybody cool. knows this mechanic. Cool. Well, I don't know how you know, how aware you are of how many new trick-taking games have been coming out and not even just new ones, just people discovering old ones that are like very innovative. Like there are a lot of games that are doing hybrid kind of things. So I love trick-taking games. And so when I found out last year that uh, Portland Game Collective was hosting this and I couldn't make it, I was like, ah, I really want to make it this year. So I'm glad I got to go and attend I had such an awesome time, met so many awesome people, like some people that I've been, you know, connected with on Discord that I've never met in person. And of course, like the the vibe was just very fun and chill. I think they said the first year, like last year when they did it in 2022, there were about 40 people who attended. And uh, this year, I think at its peak, there were like 72. I think it's going to continue to grow. Um, But it was still just nice having this kind of like intimate game yeah. convention with people just playing all these cool games, showing people different cool games. Mm-hmm. I got to visit uh, Cloudcap Games, which is a shop in Portland that does a lot of importing of Japanese trick takers, yeah. making them available to people in the U.S. And uh, some of the games I have to talk about real quickly, just yeah, some of the of games course. I played. Of Please. course, because I log my plays, so now I remember <laughs> what I played. <laughs> um <laughs> One of the games is a game called Robotrick. It's a three-player game where you are playing with a fourth AI opponent. So there's a bot called Droko, and the the bot has its own set of rules. So there's like a, there's a deck of these AI cards that tells you what card they will play, and it's really cool because when you you want to win tricks, but every time you win a trick, you take Droko's card. And, you know, so you have to think about what is Droko throwing into this trick? Do I want that card? Because the twist is you every time you win a card from Droko, you put it face up in front of you. Once you have three cards face up in front of you, every other card you take goes face down. And that's going to be negative points. So the only cards you're going to score positively are those three face up cards. And then when Droko wins a trick, Every player takes their card face down. So you're losing tricks. So if like you know Droko's gonna win, like you might want to play something low so you don't have to take too many negative points. But it's just like an awesome three-player trick-taking game. Um, I got kind of lucky that I have a copy of it because uh Ken Shoba at BGG Spring brought an extra copy from Japan and was kind enough to donate it to me. <laughs> and I was like, thank you so much. And I, it's, it's a fantastic game. Played a game called trick taking in black and white, which is a game where it has, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Um, no, the, I haven't. the cards have a black side um, or they're split in half. So it's a black mm-hmm. top white bottom or whichever way you're holding the card and both numbers on the card sum to 37. 
So if there's a white one, the black is a 36. And then there's also a black uh, one with a white 36. And, you know, so the whole deck, it's a must follow trick taking game, but you're either leading black or white. Those are the two suits and everybody has those cards. So you have to follow and kind of choose what you're doing. And the hook is you want to win an equal amount of black tricks as white tricks. Because if you win two black tricks and two white tricks, good job. You just got four points because you have four tricks. But if let's say you won three white tricks and only two black and you don't, you're not uh, balanced, then you have negative five points. So so it is it. That one is really good. Played that a couple of times. Played the Barracks Emperors, which is a new GMT game, which is really, really cool. It's kind of based on Time of Crisis. It's it's designed by the same designers who made Time of Crisis, but it does this like hybrid kind of uh, trick taking area influence thing, and it's like really good. Like I played it four players, I played it two players, and then I played it two versus two because there's a variant where you could play teams. But basically, what you're doing is you have a board where you have these emperor cards that are either yellow, blue, or red. Red is military. Yellow is populist. I think blue is Senate. Just like Time of Crisis, if you've ever played that game. And uh, you have influence cards in your hand and you're trying to surround these emperors. But you can only play cards in spaces that are the same side as your faction. So when an emperor is eventually surrounded, it resolves like a trick where the emperor color is the Trump suit. So like if I have a yellow influence card around a yellow emperor, and even though there might be a higher blue card, yellow is going to trump that. But that's not where it ends because every single card has a special ability and can break different rules. And also like when you place an influence card, um, when you place an influence card, it is likely going to be placed such that it's also going to help or hurt other players because of the way the board is spaced out. So uh, it's it's really cool. I'm I'm going to be doing a little uh, write-up about this convention uh, in BGG News, which will be dropping the same day that this episode drops. So I'll probably have like a little more info on that. But I would highly recommend checking that one out. Um, and then just to call out a few more, just to be quick. Um, there's a game called Les Plateau. I think I might've mentioned it after I talked, like went to BGG spring. I played it. It mixes trick taking with abstract strategy, but it has this bidding system where you kind of shift partnerships throughout the game. Um, very, very cool. Uh, touchdown heroes and savage bowl sports kind of gate themed games, but like very interesting inside job. Have you heard of Inside Job or yes. tried it? <laughs> no, you- not tried, but heard of it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's a like a hidden roles, like one, you know, you have uh, all players except one are a bad person. You don't know who it is. And you're doing kind of like the crew. You're kind of like trying to win these like objectives, these missions. Uh, but one person may be sabotaging it. And then it has all these crazy roles that you can kind of integrate. So I do have a new episode of Cardboard Creations coming out soon where I've, in, uh, where I've interviewed Tanner Simmons, the designer, and it's actually really fascinating to see how that game kind of originated. Um, have you ever played Diamonds? Um, 
is this the older yes. Stronghold games? Yes, I've played that one. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I had some friends teach me Diamonds, which I like. I had heard of, but I had never tried. And um, yeah, that was really cool. And I was like, I, yes. I see why that's still in print and getting printed. You know, you're like playing cards to kind of win these diamonds. And some of them you can put behind your screen, which you'll definitely score. But other ones that are placed in front of your screen, different players could potentially steal from you. And I like that. I thought that was a great game. Um, yeah. And then I also played some. So those are more like trick taking games. But I also played some climbing shedding games that were cool. Um, have you heard of Bridge City Poker or 535? No, I do not. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so these are two games that were published by the Portland Game Collective. And so I was really excited to be able to like buy them while I was in Portland at their convention and also had the opportunity to play both of them while I was there. Um, but they're really good. Like they're those shedding games where you are trying to get rid of your hand of cards first. Um, Bridge City Poker has all these crazy uh powers that you can you can throw in these ability cards that you can kind of mix into it and then 535 was interesting because you could not necessarily just have to like beat a combination on the table but you could like add one card to a combination and it had some like really interesting uh like different things happening even though it's like following that same like hey i need to get rid of my hand of cards but yeah, and then I play Bacon, which is a new one coming from, I think, All Play, um, where it's a three versus three team shedding game. So people who like teach you uh, would probably like this game. It was really fun. I think we only played around. And then last but not least, I'll just mention, I played a couple non-trick taking games too. I got in some dual gauge with uh, Jonathan Cox from John Gets Games. And we played the Denmark map of Dual Gauge for the first time. Um, that was really wild. Have you played Dual Gauge before? No, I have not. I have not, but I know the game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So each map just kind of changes up the rules. And um, in this one, you are kind of incentivized to put out stations on the map. Whereas, like, some of the maps, you don't want to put stations out or, you know, it doesn't make sense for the stock market manipulation. But um, that was fun. I played an infamous traffic for the first time. Yeah. Wonderful. Yes, yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, we had such a wonky game because we were all sort of new and we were had some weird things happen with die rolls and we were like talking a lot, but ah. Uh, so fascinating like i cannot wait to play that one again yeah it, it may be actually um my um, it, it you know this it's very difficult to determine your favorite game among all these it's it's depending on time of the day right. of group of people <laughs> but this may be my number one game for for four and five people because it's That's i would not play it with two or three actually but with right. four or five it's 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 fantastic. Yeah. Actually, uh, Cole is a uh, is I'm I'm a huge fanboy. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a fan girl of Cole really also. <laughs> yeah, I I thought you know I I picked up a you know I scored a copy of this uh, almost a year ago 
And I just haven't gotten it to the table. So I was like, I'm bringing it. It's thin. Mm-hmm. It'll you know fit yeah. my suitcase. And I want to play this game. And it's so cool. And now I'm actually reading a book called Imperial Twilight, which is on the uh, the opium wars in, in China and everything. And it's like, it's a fascinating topic. And the gameplay is just like so interesting. I can't wait to see what they do with, you know, when they make the second edition of it, like they did with John Company and Pax Vermeer. So, yeah, I uh, I, I agree 100%. I just hear, and and, uh, I've told this to Drew and and Cole, but I will restate it here publicly. I hope that the original and infamous traffic as we see it, of course, with updated rules and graphics, stays. Yeah. Yeah, there can be... Of course, if you revisit a topic, you will change some some things. But I hope that's original one, which is brutal in a way, which is maybe unfair, um, but that it stays plus something new. That would be my wish. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) I I like that idea too. So I want you and my vote for that. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what they do with it, and yeah, hopefully not too far off what it is because it's 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 pretty awesome, I think. And then I played two riveting games of Blood on the Clock Tower. Have you tried that nice. one at all? N- n- not at all, but it's uh, high on my list to play that one. Yeah, uh, it's I I love it. I think every single time I've played it, I probably like half a dozen times, maybe eight times now. I just like I walk away with like so many stories and you're just talking about it for the next couple of days. Like, oh, remember this happened? Remember that happened? Um, but yeah, we we ended up playing two games and it's I love playing with new players, too. So we had a couple new players in. we had a couple experienced players. Uh, at one point, I was I won this. Uh, my team won the second game, and we were the bad team. So that was exciting because I was like the imp, and uh, I, you know, I just I I always hate being the bad on the bad team because I feel like I'm nervous about it. But somehow it worked out. Um, but anyway, played a lot of card games, had a wonderful time. You know, I left the convention just kind of in like do I even need to play board games anymore? Cause <laughs> like, I just, I'm craving trick taking games. I'm craving shedding games. Like they're just, yeah, there's so much depth in them. They play so quickly. They're small, yeah. but I do still love board games. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's always amazing what designers come up with, with just a deck of cards or yeah. two decks of cards. It's, it's really wonderful. And often they fit various player counts uh, very well. There are trick takers for three people, for two, for four, for five. Although I also like the hybrids. You mentioned uh, the um, Barrack Emperor uh, game. So you're using trick taking or um, the game from Pear Sylvester. What's the name? Oh, Brian Baru. Yes. Yes. So so trick taking is just an element. So so it's amazing to see um, designers using trick-taking either alone as the game or as an as a tool for, for yeah. something else. It's wonderful. I yeah. totally agree. And mm-hmm. speaking of card games, today we're going to talk about mm-hmm. card-driven games or CDGs as they're called. 
Uh, we're going to talk about what they're all about, what makes them special, and of course, we'll mention some of our favorite CDGs. Um, mm-hmm. Over the past few years, I've definitely discovered not only trick-taking games, but I just love card games. Like I love LCGs, I love Flesh and Blood. Like they're just there's something about like what you can do with a hand of cards that yeah. you know is just like really exciting to me. And I just I love board games that use cards as like an integral part. So. I love CDGs. Yeah, me too. So, uh, Candice, I, I totally understand. And uh, it may be my favorite gaming mechanic, uh, CDGs. Mm. And uh, um, speaking of fanboy, um, fanboy. so um, <laughs> I'm a fanboy of, of Cole, but I'm also a fanboy of Mark. Um, oh, and, um, oh, yeah. And uh, when, when he invented the genre in the early 90s, um, you need to know at, at that time, I was a war gamer, but it was mainly, mainly not, not 100%, but mainly Hex Encounter. Mm. So he, he really, with this genre, in my opinion, at least he reinvented uh, war gaming and made it more attractive for me, for more people. And uh, that, I think, was a very, very important time. And I think also, of course, it's not a CDG. Maybe we talk later about this briefly coin series was also inspired by ah. CDGs because you're putting info and historical events on on the cards. cards. Yeah, and it's kind um, of driving the whole game. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mark Herman. Woo. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Another what a person. <laughs> yeah. Great guy. Amazing designer. Uh, but before we start talking about card-driven games, I'd love to hear about what you've been playing lately, Uli. So let's jump into Fresh Plays. Yeah, uh, so... Um a game that I played recently, even I think I played it on Tuesday, um, is um, Lantern Freedom, which is um, released or was released this year um, by Blue Panther. Uh, the designer is Alex Knight, and it's a three-player game, one to three-player game, but basically it's a three-player game on the uh, Spanish Civil War. Yes, there have been quite a few uh, Spanish Civil War games in the last five or six years, but this one is different. So one player isn't the fascists, but all three players are fighting Spanish fascism. Mm. So one player is a moderate, one player is an anarchist, one player is a communist. And if the fascists win in this game, um, then everybody has lost. But if we stop the fascists victory in the civil war then at the end one of the three players will win so you constantly also look to be better than you two team players because your agenda all three agendas are different of course anarchists are different uh, than moderates and the fascists are represented by cards in a way it's also card driven or it is a card driven game because you have a hand of cards and play, can play a card for event and or action points cool. and icons. So it's a 
wonderful game with a lot, really a lot of history. So this is right up my, my alley. So uh, I have to congratulate Alex Knight, maybe the best game I've played this year. Wow. Awesome. I'm so I have Land and Freedom, by the way. I almost played it a couple, like a month ago, um, but it didn't work out and I've still been wanting to play it. And actually, uh, I mentioned, I think on the last episode, I ended up playing Imperial Struggle when my coin game got canceled. And then I thought we were going to have a three player game and we were going to play this, but then another person canceled. So I still haven't played Land and Freedom, but that everybody I know that I've heard has played it has said wonderful things about it. It yeah. sounds very fascinating. And I love that it has that whole like, hey, we need to work together to do this, but I'm going to try to push <laughs> ahead of you anyway. Like that dynamic sounds so fun. And of course, like you mentioned, there are like, you know, probably several games on the Spanish Civil War, but I don't think I know much about it. And I don't know that I've played any of them yet. So I'm excited to kind of, uh, you know, learn about that a bit. Yeah. And, and what I also found fascinating is so, yeah, I know a little bit about the Spanish Civil War, but not all these details. Ah, and that's um, cool. there is on each card, there is flavor text. And I've seen card titles. I've seen uh, characters I've never heard before of. So it also gives you a lot of history. And if you think CDGs have to be very complex, not in this case. The rules are actually brief and pretty well written or scratch that pretty. They are well written. And, um, <laughs> and so, so it's, it's really a wonderful um, experience. So great game. And I have to congratulate uh, Alex here. So cool. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. I'm going to push that up on my, uh, uh, my queue of long queue of games I need to play still. <laughs> mm -hmm. Speaking of long queue of games I need to play still, um, I recently played a game that I received at Essen last year in 2022. And it was something like, I don't know, a month after I got back, I was about to play it, but then I didn't. And games are coming in. It's, it's just so many games to play. And then sometimes just some kind of get lost in the shuffle. Um, but I always find them. I always find them. And, uh, you know, there's a time to bring them out. But I played Peak Oil Profiteer. And this is a game from uh, 2022. Again, it came out at Essen last year, designed by Tobias Gorbent. And Heiko Gunther, and it's published by Two Tomatoes Games. It plays with one to five players, and I believe it was Heiko uh, handed me a copy of this game at Essen. I was like wandering around, and he bumped into me. He's like, "Oh, like I think you're gonna like this game. Here you go," you know. And I was like, "Oh, thank you," <laughs> but it was like literally in passing. Um, so I believe that was Heiko. So thank you, Heiko. Uh, if it was Tobias, thank you, Tobias. <laughs> um, but anyway, this is a, a kind of a different feeling game, but it's based on a universe of uh, another game um, that I think both of these guys designed called Peak Oil, which was in 2017. And it's kind of this like, it's a tactical game and it has a bit of area control and a lot of player interaction. And it's centered around a simultaneous like card driven action selection. So it's not like a card-driven game in the sense of what we're going to be talking about, uh, but it sort of is a card. It's more like similar to Mission Red Planet, if you've ever played that, 
where, um, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, where you're going to, everybody's going to pick a card and then, you know, resolve Mm -hmm. the card and take an action. Um, but in this game, each player is a top exec for an oil company and your goal is to make the most money. So, um, the board is like a map that's split into like different regions and there are three warring factions so this is like you and I, I know both love Pax Pamir and, um, and I just love games where it's like even like a war of whispers where there's area control happening, but nobody controls, you know, we all maybe can control different factions at different points. And that's what this game is kind of all about. Like, so there are these three warring factions you know, we're oil companies, we're trying to make money. It's, it's a little like, it's almost a little like silly. Like I love uh, this rule book has some good humor in it. There's corruption. So <laughs> at the beginning of the game, there's a corruption track that starts at 94 level 94, but I don't know if it's like 94% corrupt. Um, and the game will end when that track hits 100. And the other thing is on the right side of the board, there's this like track where you keep track of troop cubes. So there are little cubes of three different colors representing the different factions. And a lot of the pricing and the costs in the game are related to how many troop cubes are on the track versus on the map. So a cube is either on this track or it's on a, in, a re- in a region on the map. So um, each round... First, you're going to reveal like a contingency card and it's either going to be an event or it's going to be like a consultant. And um, the event is one of the ways the corruption is going to tick up. That's like the timer for the game. But then everybody like secretly picks which action card they want and put it face down in front of them. And then you don't simultaneously reveal. Instead, you go through each action. So we say action number one, which is networking. So anybody who played a networking card, will then flip their card. And then the turn order for if multiple people picked, you know, a certain action is on the back of the card that's on the top of the contingency deck. So there's a turn order that like kind of shifts depending on which card is on top of the stack, uh, which is cool. And, um, and then you take your actions. So you just like go through each action and that's like every round kind of the flow of the game. And like one of the actions is networking, which lets you draw a blackmail card and you can bribe a leader. You have these poker chips that are leaders. And for certain actions, you need a leader for that particular faction to actually take the action. So um, when you bribe a leader, um, you can there are some that are going to be like public that you could just pay a certain amount of money. And again, the amount of money you pay is based on the troop level of that faction. and But if you have the leader that I want, Uli, I have to pay the bank that amount of money and I have to pay you that amount of money. And then I can take that leader and now maybe I can do some action with that faction. Um, Interesting. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The mm-hmm. other thing is mm-hmm. you can sell weapons, so you have to control a leader and then you'll get a certain amount of money. Again, based on wherever the troop cube is, there's like a little gr- like a table that tells you how much money you'll get, and it varies depending on how many troops are out on the map versus on the track. Um, so that's a way to get money. But the other thing that happens when you do that is you're going to add a troop to the board, and then you're going to move it somewhere, which might cause it to go to war with another faction. But it's very simple. 
one cube, the, both cubes kill each other kind of thing. So both cubes go away when you end up moving into a space with a different faction. So like, it's very simple. You can buy drilling rights to, to put a, one of your drilling towers in a space that has a drill. Again, you need to have, I think, yeah, you have to control the leader to do that. But once you have a drilling tower, then you can sell the oil, which is the way you make the most money in this game. And you have to be able to trace a path, a connection back to a port. So then the last action you could do is contingency, which is whatever card is on the top, like whether it's a consultant or the event, you can trigger that thing. Consultants give you special abilities. So there's a lot of player interaction and it's very tactical. People are taking leaders from each other. There are blackmail cards that you can play at the start of your turn. So I, if I have, let's say you have the, the um, military leader for the br- uh, blue faction and I have that card in my hand, I play it down and I say, Uli, I've blackmailed that leader. Now they're on my side. And then if you happen to have that, uh, the same leader on, in your hand of blackmail cards, you can stop me by playing the card. So um, there's a little of that. But besides having the leaders to kind of do leader abilities, they also give you benefits on a couple of the actions. Like being a leader, I forget the two different types of leaders, but like one of them, when somebody delivers oil or sells oil, if you sell through a port where they have the leader, they get a cut of the money. <laughs> so there's there's all sorts of craziness. Um, you know, I, I played this game with, uh, what were we, five, four players. And we had a great time. We had a great time and it was like, it feels different. Like some of the things I've just explained probably sound like, oh, maybe that's from this game, that's from that game. But it like, there's something about it that felt a little different and uh, it was definitely also suspenseful when you're picking your action card, you're looking at that turn order because sometimes turn order is very important when you're trying to place a little drilling rig. You know, there might be only one space available depending on the leader that you have and everything. So uh that was really good and uh yeah i also just love the simplicity of how the troop track impacts everything like the amount of money you get when you sell weapons or or sell oil and the amount of money that you spend when you do certain things um and then the special abilities on the consultant cards are fun like i had one that let me before i selected my action card i could look at one of my opponent's action cards so, yeah, so that was helpful. So, um, yeah, so that's Peak Oil Profiteer. And have you ever seen that one or heard of it? Uh, heard of it? Yes. Never seen of it. Uh, never seen it or um, obviously not played it. But anything by, by Heiko um, is interesting, in my opinion. So I'll need to check it out. Yeah, yeah. I definitely recommend checking it out. Um and now that, you know, when you play that first game and you like learn a bit about the game, I'm excited to see how the next game goes now that we all like understand, or at least I do. So when I teach it to people in the future, I could say, hey, these are some things you need to think about, you know? But yep, that is Peak Oil Profiteer. Uh, what else have you been playing lately? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I stay with card-driven games here. So I played nice. recently a, a couple of times I played... Votes for Women by the wonderful Tori Brown. Oh, yeah. Um, and by published by the wonderful Fort Circle game. I think this is a 
company that people should look into. Mm-hmm. So Kevin Bertram does amazing work. Shores of Tripoli. Now I think they had a Kickstarter for Walls of Montezuma. And Votes uh, for Women um, is for one to four players. It was released, I think, in 22. Hopefully this is uh, correct. Um, uh, maybe this year. So I'm, I'm not yeah, sure if it's I, last I, year I, or, yeah, or this year. Yeah, I don't remember year. if it was this year or last year either, or like the end of last year. I think it was this it year. It could be. Yeah, it could be this year, yeah. <laughs> and it's about a topic I do not or I did not know a lot about so it's about uh, it's a cut driven game covering the american women's suffrage movement from 1848 to 1920 and over here in, in europe what you learn is about the movement in great britain yeah you learn yeah, this yeah. a little bit in school but basically nothing about the movement in in the u.s so i i, I found this fascinating and again what i also found Outstanding is that Fort Circle Games had um, historical papers included there, facsimiles of, of them. So it, it really added to the flavor. And of course, card-driven games with the illustrations on the cards, with a little bit of flavor text. So they they really draw you into the topic. Game-wise, I think the design origins is um, from 1960 from the game that was first published by Z-Man Games and now by GMT Games, Making of a President, 1960 Making of a President. It's, for, I said, one to four players, but it's basically a two-player um, contest uh, here. And um, But Tori and Ford Circle, they have added some things to it. First, it's quicker and a little bit simpler than 1960, plays uh, faster, and they have added more random elements to it. Why are four-sided dice, six-sided dice, eight-sided dice? Mm-hmm. But do not um, fear now it, it is a luck-based uh, die-rolling festival. No, but for some actions you are using these dice, and I think it works really wonderfully. And um, you learn a lot. It's exciting gameplay, and the playing time, once you know the mechanics it's not a lot more a little bit more than 60 minutes probably so wonderful production wonderful design i completely agree yeah i actually um did an episode earlier this year with mandy hutchinson where we talked about this game and yeah it's it's just so well done and i i totally agree with like fort circle games is crushing it um so i'm Definitely looking forward to the halls of Montezuma and like, you know, anything else coming down the pike from them. Yeah. Um, so that is Votes for Women. Another game. I did not stick with card driven games for my fresh plays. Although, yeah, you know, but a card related game. Um, I recently played Moonrakers for the first time. Uh, this is a 2020 release from Max Anderson. Zach Dixon and Austin Harrison, and it's published by Four Games or IV Games. I, I'm assuming it's Roman numeral to be Four Games, <laughs> uh, but it plays with one of five players. Uh, and this game is so how this fell into my radar because I think like still a lot of people don't know about Moonrakers until now. But um, at some point in 2022, somebody posted on Twitter 
And they were talking about like their top five or top 10 games of something that they played last year or, or something or another. And I knew every game on their list except Moonrakers. So I was like, go to BGG, look up Moonrakers. And I saw deck building and negotiation. And I was like, heck yeah, that's, that's my jam. I know it already. Uh, so I reached out to them for a review copy. Um, and they were kind enough to send me one so I could check it out. And finally got it to the table um, a few nights ago. And I discovered, spoiler alert, it's just as awesome as it sounds uh, if you're like me and you like deck building and or negotiation games. So this is a deck building game where we are a loose uh, band of mercenaries called the Moonrakers and it's in this sci-fi setting. We each have our own little ship player boards, uh, but we're essentially racing to get to 10 prestige points to become the new leader of the Moonrakers. And everyone starts with the same deck of action cards, um, which is, you know, a la most deck building games. Everybody has the same starting deck. And over the course of the game, you're going to add new cards to your deck. You're going to trash cards um, from your deck. So you're kind of manipulating and customizing your deck as you do in deck builders. Some of the different types of action cards in this game are thrusters that let you draw cards. There are shields that are going to block hazards that you have to deal with. Um, there are the weapon cards that do damage that's just needed, uh, for certain contracts, which I'll get into in a second. And then there are reactors that give you extra action points because each card you play is an action. Um, and then there are crew cards. Nobody starts with any crew cards, but crew cards are cards that you can buy for your deck that are going to give you special abilities and they're super cool. The main part of this game or aspect of this game is that you are going to be trying to complete these contracts. And contracts, there are going to be eight of them face up that on your turn, you'll be the mission leader. You get to choose one of those contracts. And, you know, if you can fulfill the contract on your own, um, go for it. Like, that's great because then you get all the rewards. But in most cases, especially early in the game, you have to work with other players. So you are going to be negotiating. Hey, Uli, uh, can, are you able to put in two thrusters? Because if you can go in with me on this, I'm willing to give you like two bucks of the rewards and one victory point. And then I'll take two victory points and the free card. Is that cool? You know, so you're so you're negotiating um, a contract with and you could do it with multiple players. So not just one player, you could do it by yourself. Um, but each of the cards, the contract cards each have a hazard value of zero to four. And if there is a hazard value of one to four, you are going to roll that many hazard dice. And so that is also kind of negotiable in your uh, contract negotiations. Like, hey, Uli, uh, if I'm giving you a point and $2 for this, can you roll both of the hazard dice? <laughs> you know, so you're deciding who's going to roll, you know, then you're going to eventually roll. Um, but these contract cards have a certain like amount of different types of action cards you need to play in order to pass the contract or fulfill the contract. So let's say Uli and I go in, we're like, yeah, you can contribute that. I know what I have and I can do. And then we roll the hazard dice. Well, Uli rolls the ones because I, I didn't want any this time. Yeah. <laughs> and the hazard dice have two blank sides, two sides that have one hazard icon, and then two sides that have two hazard icons. So <laughs> you rolling two dice, you could have up to like maybe four hazards you have to deal with. And I mentioned there were shield cards. So 
For each shield card you play, it blocks a hazard. But otherwise, hazards are going to give you minus victory points, minus prestige. So they're not good. You want to make sure you have you play some shields to protect yourself if you have to roll the die. But when you go to fulfill the contract, whoever the mission leader is decides, like I could say, I'll go first, Uli, or I could say, you go first, or I could say, I'll go play a couple cards, then you go, you know, you can, it's flexible. But what happens when it's your turn, let's say I go, um, every single action card you play is an action, costs you an action, and we only get one action. So often your first action card is going to be a reactor because playing that gives you two actions. So now I spent my first action. Now I have two actions. Cool. So now I maybe play that one thruster that we needed for the objective. And like reactors are sometimes, you know, needed for the contracts. And then you're like trying to balance out like the cards in your hand, the amount of actions you have to also achieve whatever the contract is. Um, And that's why you have to usually negotiate with people because you only have a certain amount of actions. You only have a certain amount of cards in your hands. But as you play the game, you can get ship upgrades and you get these crew cards and they're going to help you do things more efficiently and more effectively. And it's super cool. And then probably the more exciting part about this game, since it's a race to 10 prestige points, is that everybody starts the game with two objectives. So you have secret objectives in this game. And uh, you can, at the end of any player's turn, say, ha ha, I did this objective, I get a point. And on your turn, if you do not want to get a, uh, to attempt a contract, you can just stay at base. And that's a way to get more objective cards by taking stay at base, like kind of like, I think you get a dollar or two or something like that. But yeah, it's it's really cool (laughs) it's fun to see like people negotiating like like hey maybe right now i mostly care about money hey uli you take the victory point just give me five dollars on this you know and like and then seeing and then you can also screw people over so you could say (laughs) you're sold (laughs) but yeah you you could totally say like hey yeah candace i have two reactors and a thruster so i can go in with you and then it could be close towards the end of the game and you're like, you're not going to help me. So then you're like, oh, you're choosing not or you or you could play dumb like, oh, I thought I had to. But, you know, <laughs> so there's all sorts of like fun stuff you could do um, with that. So have you ever heard of Moonrakers or have uh, you played it? No, I have not played it. But now I need to play it because yeah. I think this could be a game. For me, especially, well, what is playing time, uh, Candice? And it, how many players you think is best? Is it four to five? Is it good with three? What, what do you think? So that's a good question. So according to the BGG community, it's best at four. And considering mm-hmm. I played it with five, um, and it was, I would probably agree, even though I haven't tried it mm-hmm. at four yet, like five was a bit much in terms of the negotiations. Mm-hmm. Like, they in the rules they say hey you can put a timer on to make sure okay. like no okay. one because because it can go forever you know you start making a deal with two people then all of a sudden one person's like i'll do that for one point less and then you're like okay now i'm considering that deal with this person so it can kind of like go on but i think our game our five player game with newbies took about two hours um so i could see it being like an hour and a half to two hour game probably will shine at four players because I think three players um, 
I think four players will just present more negotiation, like interesting yes. negotiation options. Um, but it's very light, like a quick teach. I want to, you know, a quick teach, especially if anybody's ever played a deck building game. It's it's very straightforward. But yeah, then the, just the discussions, like it almost like reminded me of like a sidereal confluence or something, mm-hmm. like the the action and excitement every time it got around, how people were in terms of like, if you think of a game like Twilight Imperium, when somebody's ahead, it's like, oh, I'm not going to work with them because they are, you know, two points ahead of everyone and all that stuff. Like, I think we have similar tastes in games, so I think you would like this game a lot. Yeah, I, I already wrote the title down here, so uh, <laughs> I have to check it out. <laughs> cool. And then and then there are also, like, a couple expansions that I think were on Kickstarter maybe last year for it, but there's, like, a, an expa- and they're sort of mini-expansions but binding ties let you let you like track your reputation with the other factions. And I think that will impact resolving contracts somehow. Like, hey, Uli and I have a good reputation with each other. But, may, you know, I don't know exactly how it works, but I was like, that sounds interesting. Uh, there's another one that adds like more cards, like more ship parts and crew cards. And um, I think it adds these like advanced action cards. So, again, Deck building games, yes, we love more cards, more interesting card play. So that's what it sounds like. That one's called Overload. And then there's a Nomad one, which kind of adds a board where you are moving your ship into different sectors. And this changes up, I believe, the way the contracts work, where if you go to certain sectors, you'll find contracts that better fit your strengths or something like that. I don't know. It sounds cool. Mm. So I'm glad I finally played Moonrakers and uh, we had a great time with it. And uh, this is one I will definitely play more. So that is Moonrakers. Sounds very good. Yeah. And now a word from our sponsor. Summer is in full swing, which means vacation season. Whether you're traveling with family or friends, planning a big trip or small getaway, Or if you're lacking inspiration on where to go, I've got you covered. Lookout Games is taking you to Ireland this summer. Yes, the rolling hills of Ireland is where we gather two to five players in Tipperary, an easy-peasy tiling game for ages eight and up that comes with lots of polyominoes and fun. In this cheerful family game, players create their perfect idea of an Irish country by laying out landscape tiles. The linchpin is a magical stone circle that decides which of the tiles you can choose from. If you combine your tiles skillfully, you'll eagerly collect sheep, towers, and whiskey for more victory points. With a travel time of about 30 minutes, you'll find yourself playing it again and again this summer. If you're into polyominoes and tile laying games, head over to your friendly local game store and book yourself a tour to Tipperary. You won't regret it. You've been playing card-driven games longer than me. What would you say, like, how would you define a card-driven game for people who aren't familiar with the mechanism? Yeah, I think uh, first, I think that the title card-driven games says what what it's about so so games um, normally board games or games which at least have a track um, that are using cards to um, yeah to drive the game to to as the engine of uh, of the game and um, so one thing that I love about um, card driven games is that they use this traditional mechanic 
that a player gets uh, normally a hand of cards and that they play one card at a time. So according to their preferences. In card-driven games, normally a card can be played for at least two different things. So it could be action points, could be an event. Sometimes they have up to four or five different means um, for playing. So that it's also exciting. Of course, this also means that sometimes this can be quite complex because we know that if you have several cards in your hand, even if they are not multi-purpose cards, that it's dif difficult to determine yeah. which card yeah. to play now or which card to keep. But then here you have the additional complexity. Do I play it for the event or do I play it for action points? Makes it more complex, but also, in my opinion, at least more exciting. Yes. And of course, another thing is you can script things or historical things very well, events. For example, in Washington's War, also in We the People, um, there is a card called uh, Declaration of Independence. And of course, in this conflict, this Declaration of Independence has to happen to drive the game. Right. But, so there is this event included, but you do not know when it is played. So during the game. So you can script a game according to your uh, preferences. So that I like a lot. And of course, these events, the, all these historical persona, persona or uh, yeah, events, um, they can be with a nice illustration on a card. And this allows immediately that you more immersion, that you're drawn into the game. Yeah. And sometimes it makes the quite complex games a little bit easier because in a standard game, you would have an exception. If this is happening, rule point 5.7.5, a exception. If this yeah. is happening, we are doing this. And here it's on the card. So uh, you, you are reading this brief little rule on the card. Do not have to read it in advance. Play the card. So these are my, my main uh, things. Um, and, of course, you can include in a historical game political events, which is also interesting to my mind. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. Like, again, we have similar tastes. I love those tough and awesome hand management decisions of, you know, thinking about which card should I play uh, and when, when do I play this card? Do I hold this on? And then how do I use this card at whatever time I think I should play it? And like often these games, um, a lot of these, uh, almost all of these games are probably that we'll mention are historically based or war games, um, but not in all cases, um, yeah, right. um, which is exciting because I think, yeah, this was something that started with We the People, which is a war mm -hmm. game. And mm -hmm. I think we're starting to slowly see like more non-war games um, kind of use this mechanism because it, it's, yeah, it's just like all, like Uli said, like you, the rules, you take the rules, you decrease the size of the rule book and you're putting the rules, these small and small bites on the cards that are in your hand. And, uh, yeah, often, often these games are two players, um, mm -hmm. but not always. And usually there are certain cards 
for each side and then maybe some neutral cards um, because, yes, the cards will have events, um, mm -hmm. but then they'll also have an action point value, which is often referred to as operations mm -hmm. if it's a more mm -hmm. war game and everything. Um, but, yeah, I guess, like, again, we the people, Mark Herman kind of uh, originated again, this. Again, that Mark Herman, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually the inventor of this, and I dis, uh, discovered the game in the, I think, 93 or 94. Uh, it was one of the last games by Avalon Hill um, before they were bought by, by Hasbro. And um, so, so and, and that was, in my opinion, at least a restart of the wargaming uh, hobby. So, wonderful game. And because you mentioned there are normally several card decks or neutral card sets, and the first few um, CDGs had a single card deck. So everybody drew from a single card uh, deck, and mm -hmm. that worked very nicely, made it a little bit easier, but it also resulted in some of the events cannot be used by the player drawing it. So it has advantages and um, disadvantages sure. but in the in this game I, I think what what i love in we the people and also in the re-implementation it, it's basically a redesign washington's war by gmt in 2010 which actually was the first game that spielworks published in 2010 just the german uh, edition of this oh so cool spielworks Spiel started with uh, washington's war because i loved that game and the <laughs> cool. genre so much so I'm, I'm really attached to it but what is very nice that yes it's a war game but winning the hearts and minds of the people is actually more important in in this game by political means there will be campaigns there will be a few important battles but this is more important and again i'm a fanboy of mark herman <laughs> I still have not played Washington's War, if you can believe that. I need I need to try it. So, so many uh, games and so uh, little time, uh, Candice. But what is good with Washington's War also is that the playing time is fairly short and uh, the rules for a CDG are quite compact. So you, cool. you will, with your experience, yeah. you will be... Uh, in no time you will you'll be in the game. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to try that one. And again, like not uh, not every game that is a CDG is a war game. Um, a lot of them are still historically based, but yeah, not all of them. Um, but you know, to you mentioned votes for women already. You know, that's historically yeah. based, but that's not a war game. There's uh, 1960 and making the president, yes. which is a similar, you know. Mm -hmm. election kind of political mm -hmm. struggle yeah what is interesting it's also a couple of years old uh, i think six seven eight years uh, old it's forged in steel it's a card driven game ah. that is about city building uh, historical city building and uh, although if you play the game which i like i do not love it I, but i like it um is it's more about it feels like more city dis, uh, deconstruction because you're always um, fighting against the buildings of the other players and try to remodel <laughs> gotcha but but that is um, a very interesting design 
and of course um, a game by the wonderful Dan Bullock. Uh, no oh, motherland yeah. without um, North Korea in crisis and Cold War, 1998. About yeah, North Korea. One player is playing the West, the other player is playing North Korea, and you try to also get defectors out of the uh, the country. Wonderful game by by Compass Games, and of course some people say Twilight Struggle. Um, is a war game. I'd say it's a political, political, political yeah, game I, I about the Cold War uh, by um, by Jason Matthews. We don't have to say too much about it because it was for years. It was number one at, right. at <laughs> So and um, so very important game. And I think what you mentioned uh, earlier is really very very important. CDGs do not have to be war games or historical games. Any game basically could be a CDG. I have a feeling that a lot of the um, designers in who are normally designing Eurotype games are a little bit reluctant because yeah, CDGs are a nightmare to test, the mm -hmm. interaction of the cards, and often CDGs are two-player games. Um, and so I see a certain reluctance here, but I, I'd love to see more designers pick up CDGs or yeah. using the CDG mechanics for anything, not only for, it could be city building, it could be trading, anything is doable because playing a card at a time for certain effects is a traditional gaming mechanic. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Forged in Steel because uh, my friend Ben uh, ben Mendelker has forged and sealed. And he's been wanting to show it to me. And I was I was like, what? A city building game that's a card driven game? Yes. Yes. Sign me up. And uh, yeah, Dan Bullock, uh, No Motherland Without is is excellent. Yes. <laughs> Didn't love the components that like some of the graphic design <laughs> choices. And I know that's not <laughs> under, you know. Yeah, it, it's red. The game is red, I think. So I think basically everything, the board... All yeah. the playing pieces, everything is yeah. red. And um, yeah, but that's not under his control. And if right. you actually play the game after a while, it, it adds to the experience. Yeah, uh, yeah. Actually. So, but it, so, yeah. it is a fantastic game. And I also yeah. tried, um, he did, uh, was it 1979? Raid Re on Iron, Iran, right? Yeah, Revolution yeah. Iran or something. Yeah. That mm -hmm. one I played also, and I thought, I thought that had some interesting things happening. Like I, I need to revisit yes. that one. Um, but yeah, that's I, I'm so I'm Dan Bullock is on my radar. <laughs> yeah, and and he's also a very nice fellow. I never met him personally, but we skyped uh, a few times. Cool. Very nice fellow, in my opinion. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's let's jump into. Uh, we already talked about a bunch of games, but let's go into some of our favorite games. And yes. as usual, like I. I, I kind of shy away from doing top fives and stuff because it's hard. These are just five games that we both like really like that are in this genre. And um, mine are in no particular order. I don't know about you. I yeah, I, I, I listed them a little bit in order from five to one. But actually, as I said before, with an infamous traffic, next week's list could be already a little bit different. Right. <laughs> and, and and Land and Freedom, which I mentioned earlier, could yeah. be in this 
top five list, whatever right. uh, yeah. it could be in there soon uh, too, if I played a little bit more often. So it's not that important. Yeah. Well, Uli, first I did cheat and I do have a couple honorable mentions. Do you have any? Yes, I, okay. I have honorable mentions, which I'd like to mention at the end. Is this okay? okay? Yeah, Is yeah. This? Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'll do that too then. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. All right, go ahead. <laughs> um, so, so my number five game with all these caveats uh, now is Pass of Glory. Uh, it was released in 1999, uh, designed as Ted Racer and published by GMT Games. It's a two-player game. And actually, I have a love and hate relationship with this game. I've played <laughs> it a lot. And Ted was one of the first, maybe the first designer who split up the decks. So there was a, a deck for the central powers, or there is a deck for the central powers and for the Entente. And the player's deck is even divided into early war periods, uh, center, medium, and then late war decks. So, which allows for more scripting, which I like a lot. Um, I think as a game, as a game, it's terrific. Each and every card play is important. Do I play it for the action or the operations or for the event? So, so fantastic. I just think it's a bad simulation of World War One. It's really bad. It, there are so, uh, and I know a little bit about the the First World War, and often I, I think no, this this can't be true. Yes, it's true. But I still. I, I still like the game a lot. And I know here in Germany, people who've played it more than 200 times. And, wow. it's, not a, and it's, it's not a game that you can play in 20 minutes. It, it needs a couple of hours. Um, if I'm the opponent, it's faster because they will all, uh, always beat me. So playing <laughs> <laughs> time is shorter. But it, it's a fantastic game with this caveat. I don't think it's a good simulation, but still, gotcha. if you haven't played it, give it a try. I will give it a try because um, I have uh, Paths of Glory, but I just haven't. I haven't had an opportunity to play it yet. But I know it's like a classic, and you know people love it. And you know, I I definitely want to try it at some point. So my number five game that I picked, even though we just kind of talked about, you know, we don't really need to talk about it too much. But I picked Twilight Struggle Red Sea. Um, just because I'm like, it's, I do love Twilight Struggle and, um, I, I mentioned Twilight Struggle Red Sea because it's a shorter version. Um, you know, it's designed by Jason Matthews came out this year, I think, or it might be like votes for women. Maybe it was like the end of last year. I don't know, but I think it, like it's a tense card driven political and historical strategy game. You can play it solo with Red Sea. Um, but it's, you know, kind of designed as a two player kind of tug of war struggle. It is, it kind of set the path for a lot of these kind of tug of war CDGs that are more like politically based. And, um, I think it's just still just crushes it. And I love that with the Twilight Struggle Red Sea that you can kind of condense it down into a much shorter package because like the first time I played Twilight Struggle, I loved it. But it's just like, I think it ran like four hours or so. And it's not mm -hmm. something I can get to the table often, especially because yeah. I have so many games that are like that length. So I'm trying to like give them all some love. Um, so it's just nice that like Twilight Struggle Red Sea, you can get that Twilight Struggle feel 
but in a much shorter play time. Um, also, I think it's really cool that it can teach players Twilight Struggle. If you've ever been intimidated yeah. by Twilight Struggle, like learn this game and then you know how to play Twilight Struggle if you want something that's a little bit of a longer, beefier experience. Um, but yeah, this is like, it's a game with a uh, shared deck of cards. Mm -hmm. And um, when you play your opponent's event, uh, they get to trigger it. So that's another thing that's going through your head is like, uh, like when do I play this card? Or maybe I space race it so that I can just mm -hmm. bury it, but you can only do that once per round. So mm -hmm. lots of like really interesting decisions, lots of tension. Um, and I just like, I do. I love it. So I had to mention it. So I will say Twilight Struggle Red Sea. Yeah. And, and uh, ju just one more sense. I haven't seen that game at all here. So it, it is definitely already in Germany, but I haven't seen it. And I will, for 100%, I'll, I'll uh, check it out. And especially what you mentioned here, the space race thing, that you have a once per turn, once per game round opportunity to, to get rid of one of the opponent's um, uh, events. I, I like this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think this is really, really clever. Yeah, my, my next game is number four. It's Clash of Monarchs, um, released in 2008 by um, designers Bob Kalinowski and again is published by GMT Games. And it's for two to four players. And it's about the Seven Years' War in Europe, so 1756 to 63. And it's again, it's a somewhat older game. And when you were mentioning um, it's often difficult to get games to the table, this is definitely a candidate that you won't get often to the table. Mm. Actually, I only played two campaign games of it over all the years, and both by Vassal. And not um, um, because the playing time for the full campaign is probably at least 10 hours. So wow. you have to split it yeah. off. You have to split it off into manageable um, bites. And um, we played it with four people. So you can have one player as uh, Prussia, one player as England, and then the other players are Austria and France. And later Russia is also played by by France, and um, this gives you also a nice personality game on the table with four people. I think the game is not that well developed, so you have some some errata there and some rules holes, but the experience is still wonderful. It's also more a little bit too much on the complex side for my tastes nowadays so battles can be really really involved you can play additional cards and there are uh, various outcomes leaders can be um, can die or be wound wounded and but still it's a great game in my opinion i think it's the best on the seven years war which is a fascinating uh, period and um yeah probably the only seven years war game that i know of which doesn't say too much that <laughs> that is for four players yeah, yeah. so great game game and last point on this this year actually so after 15 years the same designer bob kalinowski has or it has been released also by gmt games is clash of sovereigns which is on the war of the austrian succession which happened 
15, 16 years before. But I, I have it here, but I haven't touched it. Oh, wow. I have. So the first one's called Clash of Monarchs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I'm not familiar with that game at all. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. And then I, I didn't know about the other one either. <laughs> yeah. Again, so many games. So yeah. Many <laughs> so, so many games, but uh, definitely sounds, uh, yeah, interesting. I have to look it up, even though, and the, the 10 hour playtime doesn't scare me as someone who will play Twilight Imperium for 12 hours, but you know, if it's, so exactly. <laughs> if, if it's, if it's, if the gameplay is interesting and fun, the time doesn't matter to me. Yeah. So my next game is Brotherhood and Unity from Compass Games. It's uh, came out in 2020. It's designed by Tomislav Sipsik. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that last name uh, correctly or not. I apologize. But this is a three-player game, and it can be played with two, but it's designed as a three-player game. And it's a card-driven war game that takes place during the Bosnian War from 1992 to 1995 which is kind of a little more modern than a lot of like historical games and war games. But each player plays as, um, you're going to either play as the Bosniaks, the Serbs, or the Croats. And um, one of the things that's interesting about this game, because it's like the core thing is like, uh, it has like a point-to-point movement map, like uh, Paths of Glory. And it's like a lot of area control is kind of what you're doing here. But the cool thing, or the interesting thing is that you kind of, nobody starts isolated. Like you're kind of like, there's no clear border. There's no like slow buildup from one corner of the map. And, you know, everybody's sort of like intertwined and it really makes for an interesting game because you have to like at certain moments, like ally with one player um, versus the other player. And then you have to kind of like decide, Oh, sometimes like now I want, you know, need to ally with the other player. So it's a very awesome, like three player kind of struggle. Um, each faction is unique and asymmetric and they have kind of their own goals. And the, in this game, each faction has their own deck of cards and, um, your military strength in the game kind of fluctuates based on the history so the Serbs start like superior in like all aspects. Like you start with uh, more cards in hand. I think you have the turn order. Like so they they play around with um, your hand size for a round for each of the turns of the game. And also like who has uh, turn order priority um, to kind of simulate history. And again, you have cards in your hand that are events. It can be played for events or ops and then they also have a thing where like some cards come into play later in the game uh but really what you're doing is you're trying to control different spaces on the board there are like regular spaces and then there are key spaces and to control a region you have to control a certain amount of the regular spaces and you also need to control all of the key spaces um, then you gain some strategic will, which is kind of like the victory points in this game. And it's representing your will to fight in this this war. And each faction has their own strategic will value that will win them the game, like auto victory kind of thing. That's that's different kind of based on history. And your strategic will, again, is like when you capture or lose regions, like when you lose a region, you're going to lose some strategic will. And when you gain it, you're going to gain some. But uh, the other cool thing about this game, like there's a foreign attitude track, so which represents the diplomatic stance 
of foreign powers like European countries, US, Russia, UN, and like all the actions you're taking during the game, they have like kind of a global effect. And when the foreign attitude track is at a certain level, there are like negative effects. Like sometimes it reduces your movement. There might be NATO airstrikes. And like when it gets to a certain point, like you can lose the game completely. But yeah, I think games designed specifically for three players are rare. And yeah. uh, like this one does it just really well. Um, while also being like very like historically th- like representing the history well, it is kind of uh, in your face area control, and um, the historical topic is unique. And uh, I love that it has asymmetric gameplay and it's not overly complex. Um, and then there's uh, one thing that we didn't realize when we played our uh, our first game of it is that. At the end of the game, like if you make it through the full, I forget how many turns it is, um, if you don't control the regions you started with, like the, your home regions, you lose points. So I ended up winning that first game with a score of like four or something because everybody else ended up going negative because even though I read that rule, like when we were like mid-game, like I was just like, let's go back over, make sure we understand, we all kind of forgot it and... So a lot of people ended up with negative points, which was hilarious. So it's very important to like watch your your regions that you're supposed to maintain control of. And another really cool fact about this game that I love is that the designer made a video on YouTube teaching you how to pronounce every re- every area on this map. And I was like, that's so cool. And I actually watched it. I don't think I retained every place, but just like, Knowing how to say certain places, I don't have the map in front of me right now, so I can't show off what I learned. But, um, but I, I just thought that was awesome for a game where a lot of people won't probably be able to pronounce the locations to like actually teach people how to. So we're not like then per, you know pronouncing it incorrectly and getting that stuck in our heads. Um, so anyway, I thought that was kind of cool. Have you ever played Brotherhood and Unity or do you know much about no, this one? No, but I had it in hands. It's on my um, list to purchase and there is a vessel module. So with a group of people, we will definitely play this rather sooner than later because also, yeah, the playing time is fairly short yeah. for CDG. It's not that complex, which is nice and it's a different uh, topic, a really different yeah. topic. And I remember that part here because he is a European from the 90s. Of course, this was in the media uh, daily at, at, at that time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'll definitely play play that one. Yeah, I think it's really well done. Um, and again, like, if you have three players, like, it's just a great option. Of course, there's always, like, Churchill also and yeah. Maria. But, <laughs> but this <laughs> one is right up you know right up there in line with those games yeah so that is brotherhood and unity what's your next game uh, next game is we we talked about it briefly is washington's war uh, so from cool. 2010 designer mark herman again designed by gmt games german edition by spielworks so first game by uh, spielworks player count is two and um, we mentioned this earlier it's about it's a re-implementation redesign of we the people and it's American colonists versus um, England, and it's a political and military game. It's a lot about 
hearts and minds, you have to win the majority of people in the various um, states in the U.S. Uh, or in the forming uh, colonies, in the forming states. Mm -hmm. And um, you draw from a single shared deck. Complexity is fairly low. Um, what Mark did differently in Washington's War than in We the People was We the People still had a mini game for combat resolution for battles. So if there was a battle to happen in We the People, you draw a small deck of cards, of combat cards, and you played out that battle. Took a couple of minutes and wasn't that satisfactory, in my opinion, at least. And um, I think. Mark Simonich did it also for Hannibal, a pretty mm. early other CDG. But here, Mark got rid of it. It's more a traditional affair. You roll a die, look up the results um, on a table. Of course, uh, cards can modify this, but it's a wonderful game. And it also shows you that it's not of always that important to have a large professional army if you cannot win the uh, hearts and minds of, of the, the people. It could be also a very good so cool. mechanic for, uh, for a Vietnam game. So, yeah. yeah, because you want to win the hearts and, and minds. But Washington's War, I can highly recommend. Yep, I'm, I'm already sold, Uli. <laughs> the more you talk about it, the more I'm like, okay, I definitely need to play this. I, I think I almost got a copy at some point, but, you know, Lots of games, um, but I, I definitely want to play this one. Um, so um, jumping to, so I'm a big fan of coin games, and that is how I discovered Volko Runke. And uh, he is another, like, one of my favorite designers. Uh, to, me, to me, he's just like a brilliant game designer, but he's also such a kind, positive, humble yes. human being, um, which just, like, makes me love and appreciate him more. Um, but the next game on my list is Labyrinth, The War on Terror, 2001 mm -hmm. to question mark. It was designed in uh, 2010 by Volko Ruki and published by GMT Games. It's a one to two player game. And as its name implies, it's um, it's a game about the global war on terror. And it's definitely not a theme that will appeal to everyone or, you know, which is totally understandable. Um, but if you are looking to like learn about this conflict and you know get a, a better feel for like both sides motivations you can definitely learn a lot from this and the gameplay is fantastic so it's uh in the game one player takes on the role of the u.s and its allies and the other player takes on the role of the jihadist and it's very much like a tense cat and mouse game the u.s side is like seeking to kind of improve governance in muslim countries so that jihadism is cut off at, at its roots or at least try to like eliminate extremist fighters that pose, you know, threats. And then on the other hand, the jihadist side is trying to reestablish the Islamic caliphate and they want to damage the U.S. so that it basically gets out of the Muslim world completely. So um, it has a feel, you know, it has a feel similar to Twilight Struggle and maybe a coin game combined, but it's really its own beast. One of the things that um, makes it a little different from Twilight Struggle is on the map spaces, uh, you're keeping track of a couple things, like all of the Muslim countries are marked for their quality of their governance, which is important 
for, you know, it impacts how the U.S. players take operations in the Muslim country spaces. And then you're also keeping track of the country's alignment with the U.S., like either you're an ally, you're neutral, or you're adversary. So you're going to be like juggling these things. The U.S. also is like managing their prestige. There's also a uh, like a kind of a global war on terror, like stance, like a world posture. So you're comparing the U.S. posture to the world posture. So there are lots of different things you're juggling. When it comes to the card play, uh, one thing that Labyrinth does differently is that instead of playing one card, then your opponent plays one card, you play two cards in succession. So um, that means that like, hey, if I play a card and it triggers Uli's event, I can at least then follow it up with something else before Uli's turn and kind of like respond to that immediately. So I think that is one thing that's um, really interesting about this game. And also both sides are completely asymmetric. Again, kind of similar to coin games. When you don't use an event on the card and use operations, each side has their own like operations kind of depending on what they're trying to accomplish. And I just think it's like an excellent, like tense, like the asymmetric gameplay is awesome. It's a modern warfare topic. Uh, Again, not going to be for everyone, but it's a great like learning tool to understand this conflict. And again, it has like the feels of Twilight Struggle and coin games, which I love. And there's also a play deck app. um, That's really good. Mm -hmm. So you can play it. Have you played Labyrinth at all? Yes, I've I've played it a couple of of, of times uh, several years ago, and yes, I actually I did not think about it here. So because yes, it is a great game, could be easily on my list. Um, <laughs> so, so many uh, great games, and let me also um, uh, confirm in, in my opinion that Volko is a wonderful person, very kind, very intelligent, of course uh, too. But uh, yeah, so great game plus great designer. Yes, yes. So that was Labyrinth, The War on Terror, 2001, to question mark. Okay, and my next game is, I cheated, Candice, uh, because uh, <laughs> I wanted to have six games here. Ah, nice. So I, I said, well, it's a combo. Here I stand and Virgin Queen. Yes. So, um, and so um, it designed both by Ed Beach and both published by GMT Games. And um, Here I Stand is from 2006 and Virgin Queen is from 2012. And both games are for two to six players. But let me state, there's probably even now a solo uh, option. But let me state, I think these are six player games. Because in my opinion, at least, you need these different characters at the table. And it will change. um, if, If you have each um, player playing two um, countries, nations, powers, powers is a better word, um, it will be a different feel. You need six different characters, in, in my opinion, which also means because these are long games, there are shorter scenarios, but you should play the campaign game. It's at least six hours, could be eight hours, so you're playing for a day. But then it's worthwhile. You're not often doing this, but I try to play one of these games every 15, 16, 18 months. And then it's a wonderful experience with the right group of people. So what are you doing? And here I stand. It's the wars of the Reformation. So in the early to mid 16th century. And um, 
So, of course, it's a time of the Protestants when this movement by Luther and then Calvin in Europe uh, started. And uh, you have one power as a papal state, and they, of course, try to suppress this um, movement. And what is excellent in both games is that the powers are very asymmetrical. So we, they do not have the same victory conditions. And actually, the Ottoman power, they are also included. They do not care if in, in Europe, in the Western part, if they are Catholics or Protestants, they want to fight against and win territory mainly from the Habsburgs. So move on to Vienna and, and of course, um, uh, earlier on, on to Budapest. And that makes the games also so exciting um, because everybody has their own agenda. Um, Virgin Queen is the wars of religion in from 1559 to 1598, so a little bit later. And the religious part is a little bit simpler because in here I stand in the earlier games, um, the you roll a lot of dice to convert spaces from Catholicism to the Protestant cause or vice versa. This is simpler in Virgin Queen, but it's not a simpler game because here you have marriages. So you try to have your son married to the daughter of a different uh, uh, power to have a nice uh, arrangement. You have cards for this. There are a table spread. There are also in this game, but also in here I stand, I think, there are events that could have happened but did not. For example, the Ottomans can build the Suez Canal because they had plans for it. They started it, never completed it. And as we know, the Suez Canal was only completed several hundred years later. But if they managed to do this, then it's a huge achievement and will, will bring you uh, lots of prestige. And the French player... The French king is interested in arts, so he ha so he tried to hire the best uh, artists of the time, and so so this is a wonderful game. Yes, there is military, there's politics, there's everything. Huge game, huge amount of uh, large amount of fun. So wonderful experience. And speaking about wonderful designers, it's not only Volko, but I had the pleasure to play. Um, once Virgin Queen was at Beach and his son, and uh, also awesome. great, great people. Yeah. Awesome. I am so glad you brought this up, Uli, because I still haven't played Here I Stand or Virgin Queen. They sit at the top of one of my shelves, and but I have a game scheduled next month to play Here I Stand. Finally, yeah. I'm doing it the weekend that uh, San Diego History Con East is going to be. Since I couldn't make it out there, I'm not going to be able to make it out there for that. So I was like, I need to play something epic. I have always kind of described Here I Stand as historical TI4. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I'm like, I'm so here for that like experience, you know. So I'm so pumped to play it and I'm glad you know you have played it and are sharing your experience with it and everything because oh yeah both of those games both of those games so maybe yeah. by the time you know at SNL I'll tell you how it goes when I see you at SNL yeah. hopefully <laughs> I will ask you <laughs> yeah awesome awesome so um my so that was here I stand and virgin queen 
My next game is the one game on my list that is not historically based, and that is Hegemony, Lead Your Class to Victory. Uh, this is a 2023 release designed by Vernavis uh, Timotheo and Vangelis Bagiotarkis. And it's uh, published by Hegemonic Project Games, which is based in Cyprus. It's a two to four player game, but um, either most ideal at four or three. Um, again, we have asymmetric factions. This is a political economic card driven game where each player is taking on the role of a socioeconomic group in a fictitious state. So one player is going to be the working class. One player is going to be the middle class. One player is going to be the capitalist class. And one player is going to be the state. And it's very much so based on like actual academic principles. So even though it's not historically based per se, it's you can learn something by playing it. <laughs> um, but yeah, each faction has their own like actions that they can take. Like you have a your own deck of cards. When you play a card, you can do whatever the card says. So like an event or whatever the action is on the card, or you can just discard the card and play one of the actions on your personal menu and everybody's menus are different. You all have different goals, but there's a real interesting kind of uh, push and pull in this game where it, there's a balance where you almost like have to sort of work together, but you have your own motivations. Um, there's a whole political kind of phase Again, that re always reminds me of TI4 a little bit where you're going to be, you'll be able to propose bills and vote on bills. And everyone, again, has kind of their own motivations and the way that they're going to score. And I love asymmetrical gameplay. I think almost every game we're talking, a lot of these games we're talking about feature not only that they're card driven games, but they also have asymmetrical yeah. gameplay. Um, this theme is just, just unique also. And I just think it like the way the game plays out, like there, you could do some like role, like LARPing it a little bit, role playing, and it, it'll help you understand, you know, where, no matter where you fall on these, like in these socioeconomic groups in real life, um, it'll kind of help you understand again, motivations of different groups, the way this game is designed. So anyway, I, I backed it. I got my Kickstarter copy. I haven't gotten it to the table yet. It's kind of a beast to teach because, you know, you're asymmetric, it's like asymmetric yeah. games. Yeah. 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 So, but there are, there are a lot of videos out there. I'm sure there's some good how to play videos, but yeah, that's hegemony. Lead your class to victory. I've yeah. tried I, that one. I haven't played it. I haven't played this either, I, but um, I saw it being played at Hexacon in, in, in May or so, and people enjoyed it and the production values are excellent. Looks yeah. great on the table. So, so fantastic production here. So, yeah, another game on the it has to be played <laughs> at a certain point list. Yes, so, yeah, at is, a certain and, point. <laughs> and it's it's a long list. Yeah, but what, what can you do? Right. Um, so, so my last game then is uh, Empire of the Sun, and it's uh, woo. I'm. I'm not sure if it has been released in 2004 and 2005, but there are so many printings, and I think it's still in print, um, which is yes. quite special for a complex war game. 
And it's designed by the one and only Mark Herman. I think we mentioned that name before. Published by G&T <laughs> Games. I think we mentioned that um, company Published, before yeah. too. Player count is one to two. I'm not a solo gamer, so I haven't tried to solo rules. And I think they were only coming into the game in the third or fourth printing. I've played it with two people, um, just as a two-player game. Again, it's asymmetrical, of course, because Japan and the United States and with Great Britain, they have different, um, totally different aims. What is brilliant in this game? Or well, let's start differently. First, it's a really complex game because the Pacific War is complex. Um, one thing is that the theater of war is huge. And then, of course, it's very different to fight a land war in Burma, for example, than to have a carrier battle at Midway, for example. Because, and th this shows us again the sheer brilliance of Mark, how you have these different time scales. A carrier battle can be in, can be decided in minutes, maybe even seconds, if if uh, if the plane strike and the carrier um, uh, sinks, that is an event for a minute. But integrate this into a strategic game. It's not an operational game. Mark did this with Pacific War first for victory uh, point, uh, for victory games, and now reissued, I think, last year for uh, GMT games. That is an operational game on the Pacific War. This one is strategic. And also included are all the politics. Of course, there's China with Chiang Kai-shek, with Mao already. You have the Indian movement. And um, integrating this into one package is amazing. And I'm still not sure how you can achieve this. But only the most creative people are able to do so. That's why I'm not even attempting uh, this. <laughs> and yeah, and, and of course, being so, um, having so different um, capabilities. So, of course, the United States is a much stronger power. Um, Jap so, Japan does not have to win the whole war, they have to break the will to fight of the um, United Na uh, States and uh, Great Britain. And this is done by uh, will or strategic will track. And also this is wonderfully handled. Last sentence uh, here is, if you are playing one of the shorter scenarios, do not start with the 44 scenario, because here the uh, Japanese player he has to be, he, he cannot do that much anymore, and he has a strong will <laughs> to see the end of the game. So, because it's the fun here to play is on the, on the um, allied player. So, uh, yeah, I have tried to learn Empire of the Sun <laughs> multiple times. I feel like it's one of these games where, like, twice a year, um, I will try to like, cause there, there's that, that small, uh, what is it? Burma. What is that scenario? There's a short scenario where you could kind of learn yeah, how to get started. I can't think of what it was called. It was in the uh, C3I magazine, but there's yeah, a, um, yeah, 
I forget what no, it's No, I, I, I think it's, it's on, on the Solomons, but I may be, I may be wrong. But I, I may be wrong. That, that was, there is a teaching scenario in NC3i magazine, but I'm, I'm not yeah. certain. I, yeah. I don't recall what it's called, but like it's supposed to like kind of teach you the, ga- the mechanisms of the game in a more mm-hmm. smaller, shorter, digestible, but uh, like package, but it's still. It is a beast. It is a yes. beast of a game, but I'm so fascinated by it, and I can't wait until I actually will sit down to play it. I'm planning to attend GMT's warehouse weekend in October, so maybe I will find someone uh, there to like hold my hand. Like I'll do my homework too, but like you know, it, it is a complex game. But I would I would love to kind of finally play it because I know it's like awesome. It, it is it is awesome and yes an experienced player and it, it's uh, the individual mechanics are not that complex but there are you have land warfare air warfare naval warfare you have politics you have the various theaters all in one place and it's one of the earliest I think so maybe I'm wrong I think so um, that one of the earliest CDGs that did not use point-to-point movement or area movement, but hexes. Mm. And of course, hex movement has uh, makes it much more precise, but it also has its complexities because how fast can a squadron, naval squadron move? But how fast is the plane? And again, this time scaling that is also m- most brilliantly done in Pacific War, the operational group by Mark Hurm. This is so complex. And again, that's why I'm a fanboy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go Mark Herman. Woo. <laughs> okay. So my la- that was Empire of the Sun. And my last game is not a Mark Herman game. <laughs> and I don't remember. I don't know the year it came out. But um, my pick is... It is a game that I actually have not even finished a complete game of, but it is of all the games that I like think about. It is the one that like next time I can sit down and play something, I want to play this game. I'm excited by so much about it. And that game is Versindas Volk. And ah. yeah, yeah, which which stands translates to "We are the people," which was the slogan mm-hmm. by East German demonstrators in yeah. 1989. I don't recall what year this came out, um, but it's designed by Per Sylvester, who uh, created Brian Boru and The King Is Dead, and mm-hmm. also co-designed with uh, Richard uh, Civell, who designed Maria and Friedrich, yes. which are also bangers. Um, and this is published by Histogame. And it's a two-player game, but there's an expansion where you could play two yeah. versus two, um, I, which I own. But, you know, I guess I should just start with finishing the two-player game, <laughs> uh, which I actually started with Fred Serval on, um, on his channel. He did, he did a uh, teach and play game with me that we have sitting out in Vassal somewhere that we need to finish, Fred. <laughs> um, but in Versendas Volk, it is a card-driven political strategy game where one player plays as East Germany, the other plays as West Germany, and it basically recreates the history of, you know, divided Germany from the Berlin airlift or Berlin blockade that started in 1948 um, to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Um, and what I think is, like, exciting and fascinating to me is a couple things about this game. First of all, it has some, like, economic elements where you are... 
um, kind of building infrastructure. It's important to build infrastructure and factories out on the board. So you have like this kind of what looks like a Euro game sort of situation um, happening on the board. But the hook of the CDG aspect is that instead of having a hand of like eight cards, you have a display of, I think, like seven or eight cards. And then you have two cards in hand each. So only two cards that are secret. And on your turn, when you play a card, you can either play one of the cards in your hand or you play one of the ones that are face up on the table. And these cards, again, have, you know, there's some that are for uh, East Germany, some that are for West Germany, and then some that are neutral. So it's like you're like having this public display and your decision of like, do I want to trigger that just so I make sure that Uli does not do that card or does not get access to that card? Or do I go for that thing that I really want and need to do? And But I see my opponent sees the same thing I do. And I think that is like just so cool. Um, and also like the flow of the game is such that you play through four decades and each decade is split into two like half decades where you'll go through this display of cards and the cards in your hand. But then at the end of the decade, you go through this kind of resolution, which like there are three different tracks. You're managing like unrest on the board, all sorts of things. I'm sure you have played this game and you can probably chime in a little more, but I, I just, there's something that's so exciting to me, like just from that little bit that I've played of it. And, um, just like, I love Pear Sylvester. I love, um, I love Maria too. So like these, like this design duo is just really cool. And I love that you're managing economics and all sorts of like social aspects. And, uh, it just, it just feels different. It just feels different. Yeah, I agree 100%. So first, uh, great designers and, and, and great game. And I think, um, and so I haven't played it recently. Um, we wanted to play it actually at, at Mallorca um, and somebody actually brought it, but so many prototypes, so we did not end playing it. Um, but I think what you mentioned um, is the most important thing. You do not necessarily need a full hand of cards to have an exciting gameplay experience because mm -hmm. this display of cards, exactly what you said, has, brings in a different kind of tension uh, to the table. So very well done here, Richard and Pea. So, so really great game. Yeah, economics are included. What I also love is that as the East German player, you do not have to uh, build the Berlin Wall. It has advantages, or not only the Berlin Wall, the whole wall. It, it has advantages to do so because you're not losing that many people anymore who are mm. fleeing the country. But of course, um, it, it, it is not good for reputation to build this. So you, you can go into different um, things, explore different uh, things. So, so I think very well done. It's also a compact game which I like. Oh, and yeah, small the, box kind of. Yes, yeah. and the playing time is not that long, so also well done. What I haven't played so far, it's somewhere here behind me. It's a 2v2 <laughs> two two two. version. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, because what I've heard is that it plays 
very well. I saw it in, in January at the Matthias Kramer convention. The designer before were playing it and the, they enjoyed it because it adds the superpower to, to the site. So for the GDR player, you have the USSR. For uh, the West Germany, for, you have the US player. And yeah, first you have to win as a site. But then one of the two players is winning, uh, oh, so, so awesome. that makes it, and it adds up a little, a, a few more cards, a tableau, but not. It's it's still not a huge game, and it's still not a six-hour game. So yeah, so fantastic. So great choice here. I'm. I think I'm gonna get this in uh, the weekend soon. I'm just gonna say soon. Like I'm. Like just talking about it and thinking about this game gets me, you know, re-excited about it. I I need a. I need to make time for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, again, there's so many good games here. Yeah, there are. And speaking of, did you want to mention a couple quick honorable mentions? Uh, yeah, very quickly. And I think I mentioned a few already. No Motherland Without by then. Uh, Bullock, the North Korean game. Of course, Twilight Struggle. Um, then uh, Wilderness War. Another game by Volko Ruki, a very great, a good game. Then Unhappy King Charles, the English Civil War. It's also an older game by GMT Games. Designer is Charles Vasey. But I think, I think, I may be wrong, so that uh, Phalanx is redoing it, but people can surely check it out. It's a yeah, great game. Yeah, yeah. I think um, that's correct. Um, then for the people, um, another Mark Herman game on the American Civil War, one of the earlier ones. I think that was the last game published by Avalon Hill, where GMT Games has published several editions. It still uses a single deck and still works magnificently. And finally, Pursuit of Glory, which is um, using the Pass of Glory system. I prefer it to, I think it's even better than Pass of Glory, but okay. it comes with more complexity. It's gotcha. a, on the Near East and Mediterranean area. And um, I think it's out of print for a long time, but probably it's on P500. So Pursuit of Glory by, oh, I'm not even sure if it's by Ted Race. I could be, no, I think it's by different uh, designers. Okay. But, People check check it, out. it out. Either way, check it out. Cool. And I have a couple honorable mentions as well. Um, one is I've mentioned it on the podcast at least once before, um, but Dual Powers Revolution mm -hmm. 1917. Um, I think that might be my one of my favorite like uh, card driven games that fits in that like hour or less time slot. Mm -hmm. But you also have like Red Flag Over Paris, which is excellent. Yeah. Thirteen Days Watergate all excellent. So kind of bundling those all together as those like hour or less games. Um, then a game that I've only played once and it ended prematurely because somebody had an auto victory successors. Uh, I have the fourth, the beautiful fourth edition from Phalanx. That is like in the vein of here I stand where it's like this epic multiplayer CDG uh, where you're vying to be, be uh, one of, uh, or to be Alexander the Great's successor. Um, again, I've, I've played it once and that's, that's Richard Berg and Mark Simonich, um, co-design, uh, Verdun 1916, Steel Inferno. Yes. Oh, yes. I forgot that one. Oh, yeah. Great game. Great, great game. game. I've only played a couple turns of it. Um, but it's a World War One uh, 
card-driven game, and it kind of, like, basically, German forces are trying to capture or isolate Verdun. French army is trying to, like, protect and prevent that. Uh, great components, like, you have these, like, blocks. It's very relatively simple to play. Yeah. Um, but, again, great tension. Amazing art uh, by uh, Jacques Tardy. Um, but anyway, that's one that I've been like dying to revisit. And then the last two I'm going to bundle together as a, like that hour to hour and a half sweet spot. And, uh, one is Europe divided by David Thompson. Um, the, the, one of the cool things that does is when you take control of an area, it's like more of a political game. Um, but when you take control of an area, you are, uh, getting cards into your deck that are weaker so there's a whole, like, as you take over more regions, your deck that you're drawing from gets a little bit weaker, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then it does some other things with, like, headline cards similar to Twilight Struggle. But again, you could play it in 90 minutes or less, which is awesome. Um, and then Siege of Vienna, uh, is it 1683, I think? Um, that was a capstone game. Uh, Robert Dulesky came out about yes. last year, I think. Yep, I think it came yeah, out in 2020. Yeah, I think that was a, a spiel release for um, Capstone yeah. Games. I thought that was fantastic as yeah. well. And it's like, a very like both of these games are very accessible and they can be played yeah. in like about 90 minutes or less. Um, and they're they're all very different too and great components in Siege of Vienna. Very, yeah. really nice done production. Um, yeah, it is 1683, 1683. But yeah, so those are just a couple honorable mentions. Like we could probably both mention even uh, more games that we love in this genre. Uh, yeah, and and and, and um, especially when you were mentioning Verdun and now Siege of Vienna, I, I totally forgot about these uh, games. But yeah. uh, really, <laughs> they deserve to be mentioned because these are great games. And if you allow me, I, I would like to point people already on two more games that came. To yeah. my mind, which aren't out yet, but um, one is um, by Skellig, Capstone, and also Spielworks. It's a Matthias Kramer design. When you were mentioning Watergate, yes. it's Weimar. It's a political game. It's a four-player CDG. Yeah. Should be out in October. It's a wonderful long game just for four players on the Weimar Republic, but only political. Great game. Matthias Kramer is a great, great Designer and a wonderful person too. And again, uh, I think there is not even a publisher yet, but people will see it at a certain point. I played it uh, at the Mallorca um, gathering Mm -hmm. uh, early this month. It's called Lenin's Death right now. It's a two-player game like Watergate. One player is Trotsky. The other is uh, Stalin. So, and we try to be the successor. We know that Lenin will die at a certain point, and then we want to be in this, um, in the, the, the new president, dictator, whatever, um, in, um, in the Soviet Union. And it's a very simple game. Playing time is 40 minutes, and cool. it's still not 100% developed, but can I, I can already people uh, tell It's going to be good. <laughs> it will be good if it's out. Whoever publishes it, grab Lenin's Death by Matthias Kramer. It's a great, great game. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for those additional mentions. I will keep them on my radar. And actually, uh, Weimar Republic, I think it's called. I'm very excited about that one. Um, I, I backed that on Kickstarter. So, yeah. 
It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Uli, it is always such a pleasure to talk to you. And I think this was just, I'm so glad we picked this topic to talk about because you know, you have a lot of experience and also just like as a publisher, you have a different perspective on games, which is really cool um, to hear. But just as a gamer and a fanatic, like it's cool to hear you, you know, share some of the games that you're passionate about and mechanism, this mechanism, card driven games. Ah, so good. So good. Yeah, so great. thanks. Thanks. Thank you for making the time. And I'm looking forward to catching up with you more at Essen. Yeah, so so it was my pleasure. Here, really, I'm passionate. As you said, I'm passionate um, about this, and I love to talk about this. And uh, yeah, Candice, my pleasure, and hopefully meeting or not. Hopefully, if you are coming, we are, to, we uh, are definitely meeting. So yeah. then we are meeting, <laughs> and I'm already looking forward to that. <laughs> awesome! Thanks, Uli. <laughs> You've been listening to the Board Game Geek Podcast, produced and edited by Candice Harris. Special thanks to Matt Fonda for editing and mixing our music. Be sure to visit us on the web at boardgamegeek.com. You can also find us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitch under Board Game Geek. You can reach us by email at podcast at boardgamegeek.com. Thanks for listening and happy gaming! Happy gaming!